This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some slippers from BunnySlippers.com. So, hey, BunnySlippers.com, FoundItemClothing.com. Get some cool t-shirts from your favorite cult films like Revenge of the Nerds or Teen Wolf or any of those. So, uh, we've got some Thanksgiving leftovers today. Uh, David Heath sent me something, uh, not knowing that I... uh, had already posted my PGTTCM Hyborian Age with Ken Hein. I, yeah, no, uh, here's, uh, here's David Heath talking about the Hyborian Age, or Hyborian Time, as the file says. And make sure to uh, check out Dave's upcoming project that I'm going to be working with. I'll, uh, I'll tack it on to the end so you can listen to it if you want. But yeah, this is... Uh, David Heath talking about Hyborian time. My name is David Heath, and I run a a blog called Dave's Corner of the Universe. And I've been asked to talk to you about Robert E. Howard's Hyborian Age. As a literary device, the Hyborian Age has one purpose— and that is to glorify and to give something that can reflect light onto one character. Robert E. Howard's most famous, Conan the Barbarian. But that just makes me respect the man so much more because of all the work and labor and just this intense amount of time he spent creating this background universe. Um, I mentioned before in other podcasts that Robert E. Howard was basically going through a writer's block. And he started out the creation of Viburian Age as a way to overcome that, a writer's block. And to do it, he wrote an essay that was not published in his lifetime, but was sort of his writer's guide uh, to this period of stories uh, called the Hyporian Age. This essay was about 8,000 words long, and he used it to basically detail the background of this world that he was going to create for this one specific character, or who eventually creates this one specific character for this world. And I've said it before, but Robert E. Howard would have been the world's greatest dungeon master. He is going to be that guy that creates a tire binder full of notes for this campaign that he doesn't plan on leaving this one geographical area. But who knows? Maybe the name of the desert merchants of wherever is going to come up in a reference. So he wants to be ready for his players. So he's got it all documented. And we're in about... 2 minutes and 18 seconds. So here comes our obligatory Howard and Lovecraft comparison. I love Robert E. Howard. I love his writing style. I also, you know, really like Lovecraft. But the things that Lovecraft pales at compared to Robert E. Howard, is creating characters and world building. And this is 
probably Robert E. Howard's world creating at his best. This is his prime. This is his magnus opus. So would it surprise you that this world does not exist in the first Conan story? The first Conan story is not set in the Hyborian age or even some historical age. It takes place in the 1930s. The first short story where the name Conan is mentioned is in Howard's The People of the Dark, which, like I said, was published in 1932, so we can assume it's happening right about that time, where a man sees a woman he thought he was in love with him and a friend go off into some caves to assumingly make out, and he chases them down to kill them. And then what happens is these primal aborigines come up from the cave, attack them, and he is the reincarnation of Conan, and he overcomes this, you know, jealousy and fights these primitive creatures, beings, these aborigines. Um, I'm going to steal a term that I used in uh, the... Uh, Black Clock audio uh, tales uh, story about Beowulf, which actually I'm going to steal from Michael Crichton uh, from his copy of Beowulf, and I'm going to call them Eaters of the Dead. Uh, I'm just doing this for two reasons. I like it, it finds things full circle, and I'm also throwing out an advertisement for another podcast I did. But this is the first Conan story, and it is about these creatures that survive the pre-human civilizations and the cataclysms that fell their civilizations and fought a man in the 1930s who was reincarnated Conan. And since Robert E. Howard was this huge believer in reincarnation, which obviously inspired this story, I think it's sort of appropriate. And as I remember, the character is never named, his, his current name, and I may be wrong about this, but I don't remember the current inhabitant of, or reincarnation of Conan is ever named, so it's kind of implied that it is Robert E. Howard. And that, especially since this was a time when the only woman he ever loved turns out to be also dating uh, one of his best friends, I felt that this was probably catharsisism for him. But I also think it sort of says Robert E. Howard is Conan. The spirit of Conan has come to the 20th century through Robert E. Howard. So let's jump in our time machines and let's go from 1930s to 10,000 before our Christian era. And let's go to the land of the Hyborian Age. In reality, 
we are still dealing with a Stone Age civilization. Uh, now, in Howard's reality, this is not only a Iron Age civilization, it is the second one. The first one was destroyed by cataclysms. This one will be destroyed by cataclysms. And then we'll have the current civilization. So this is the in-between civilization between the original civilization and current man civilization in the Howard mythos. Now, as sort of an aside, there are people who take this as literal. Not necessarily literal from reading Robert E. Howard or even know who he is, but there are some de sort of offshoot uh, occultists, New Agers, uh, parapsychologists, who I know, who believe that there were advanced civilizations like Atlantis that were destroyed and were then rebuilt. Uh, Atlantis is, of course, the most famous. Uh, there was, though, about 12,000 years ago, a mass destruction of plants in North America. And there's even people now who believe that this was caused by this advanced civilization or was a byproduct of what destroyed these advanced prehistoric civilizations or lost civilizations. Again, it's not believed by many people, but enough that people I know sincerely believe this, and we've had discussions about it. Now, Howard is going to populate this world with civilizations that are going to be basically copies of actual historical civilizations that he could read about. So we have the Stygians, which are basically the Egyptians, but his version of Nile is going to be named the River Styx. And it's going to be the sort of ancestral memory that's going to leak into the Greeks and the Romans when they talk about the River Styx in Hades. Now, I realize I'm jumping around a little bit, and uh, I appreciate you listening to this bearing with me, but I just sort of had a, a thought, you know, and I was thinking about, you know, I have friends that believe in this pre, you know, prehistorical societies being wiped out. But it came to me that I've got a lot more friends that believe it than I thought because many of my Judeo-Christian friends take the story of Noah as gospel. And I mean, no pun there. They actually think that it is the, the story in Genesis is the literal way that happened. And that this pre-Noah society 
was destroyed by God. And, and I'm not making any judgment here, but at least on the surface, Robert E. Howard was raised a Christian. He does become a very strong believer in reincarnation. But I'm wondering now, did this story of Noah and the fact that this pre-Ark, pre-antidiluvian you know, society, I wonder if that had anything in his mind when he was writing these things about societies coming up and being destroyed. So I, I feel kind of bad, but I was almost sort of laughing in my myself, you know, about my friends who believed in this, the societies that there's no evidence existed. But now I'm thinking about it, well, most of my friends believe in that. I was also sort of interested in that the Hyborians force the Picts basically away from their homeland, take it over. And the Picts, and these are not the historical Picts, they're not even the Picts that Howard is going to be write about in his Bron Machmon stories. These are going to be sort of pre-Picts, uh, a prototype race of the real world picks, and they're going to be forced to the Pictus wilderness, which is basically a pre-Columbian uh, America. Even though I don't think it's separated, they're all he's all sort of connected to the supercontinent, and he even for these areas he even uses. Iroquois names. And I thought that, you know, the thing that sort of parallel I thought about was, was sort of the story that we see in the Book of Mormon. So I don't think, or near as I can tell from my, remember from my reading, that, that Howard sets any, if many, of his stories in the Pickus wilderness. But I would be very curious if he was to find out if he was or was not aware. I mean, he, I'm sure he was probably living in the West, at least aware of the Mormons and maybe the concept of what the Book of Mormon is. But I would love to know if he was inspired by the Book of Mormon. And I would love to know, and, and I'll have to do some more research, and if someone else has, and please let me know, if he ever wrote anything saying that he was uh, inspired by the book of Genesis about, uh, you know, the uh, antediluvian civilization before Noah. Of course, his most famous people is going to be the Sumerians, which, of course, you know, Conan is. And in the geographical position, they came out of what's now the United Kingdom. And in his long essay, um, Howard basically states, these are the proto-Indo-European people. Now, it's been a long time since I've had European history in college, but I'm pretty sure that they are, in reality, the Rom, that 
basically came from India to, or from India to Europe, um, that they are who they are in reality. But Howard has them being these sort of proto-English, proto-Scotch, proto-Irish, being his, basically, the first of these European civilizations. And just as Howard is a descendant of people from the United Kingdom, you know, Conan is a descendant of these proto-English people. Sumerium is this Iron Age people. Uh, we know this because Conan's father was a blacksmith. But there are not as technologically advanced as, say, the Hyborians or other civilizations that have settled down. They're still, to some extent, hunter-gatherers, uh, relying mainly on, on hunting. They're not as technologically advanced. But they don't have some of the evils that these more settled societies have. Uh, they don't trade in slaves. They don't take children as slaves. Their word is their bond. They are honorable people. Again, we see this as, you know, Howard's sort of perfect ideal of a man or a Texan as found in his idea of a primitive society where the masculine strengths of being able to fight and defend your people and to have honor and to take no guff from other people is given a place where they can grow and will not only grow, but a champion of those values such as Conan can literally become king. My name is David Heath. Again, I run a blog called Dave's Corner of the Universe. And I'm grateful that you would allow me to, to talk a little bit about uh, Robert E. Howard and uh, some of his creations. Hey, everyone. If you've liked what you've heard and you want to hear more, uh, check out Dave's upcoming project. Or you can always donate some money to PGTTCM. Go to PGTTCM.com. Check on the... Uh, donate button, uh, go to pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron that way. Not through Patreon. We don't do Patreon, but we do podbean.com's patron program, which works pretty good for us. And also you can go to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate what you can. All right. Thank you so much. Here's some, uh, that, that thing I was talking about with me and Dave, and I'll just put that on right now. All right, here we go. In the mid-1980s, the world was on the verge of a nuclear war. In anticipation of the Cold War becoming a hot war, the Illuminati built a secret base full of magic and technology a full century beyond what the rest of the world had, hiding under a goat farm in northern Oregon. 
Eventually, the threat of war between the East and West disappeared, and the Illuminati mothballed the installation. In the year 2012, the leaders of the Illuminati left the world, and the installation was completely abandoned and forgotten. In 2020, said installation was discovered by a group of nerds and goat farmers. Uh, I don't think goats are supposed to glow that color. What colors are goats supposed to glow, Dave? They began to use this advanced technology to start a podcast. Based on the three F's of nerdism, fiction, for the amazing adventures, thrilling stories, and unrestrained fun. Is that a zombie? Yup. Is that a flamethrower? Yup. Don't be home without it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Billy and Nanny Goats, hermaphrodites, three gender aliens, and cryptids, put your appendages or hooves together for... Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Hello? Hello? Is this thing on? Hello, Dave. Can somebody please turn the computer off of Captain Kirk's kinky girlfriend mode? I'm on it, dude! Welcome, Dave. Okay. Much better. Well, my name is Dave, and I live on a a goat farm. Uh, which is on top of a secret Illuminati base. And as of 36 seconds ago, I'm a podcaster. Okay, let's uh, talk about the podcast. It is called Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And though I am sure that goats are going to uh, appear quite frequently on this program... It's going to focus on the three F's of nerdum. The first F is going to be fiction. So the, the first third of the show is going to focus on some writing of some very talented people, either read by themselves or other people, or people reading a very uh, special or just really important uh, public domain stories. Then the next F of the show, which will be covering the middle part, is going to talk about fandom. About things that people love with a nerdish or geeky bent. Whether this be comic books, anime, adventure movies, uh, 1920s pulp stories, anything that is maybe not embraced by mainstream pop culture, but people or someone out there is very passionate about. And we're going to wrap it up with the uh, final F's, uh, facts. Now, this could be a historical story, uh, trivia, and to be honest, we're going to play a little loose, at least for this podcast, with the term fact. So it may include things like urban legends and 
cryptozoology tales. We're not saying that the events were facts. In that case, the fact is that somebody out there telling these stories. So, uh, let's get on with it and... Oh, what's that? You want to hear about the uh, Illuminati base? Well, I guess I could talk a little bit about it. Um, oh, that reminds me. If you're not listening to this podcast on a computer or a cell phone or a tablet, but instead are actually using a Cerebrex broadcast relay 7 through 9er alpha, you need to set your redundancy frequency to XY103 dash dark green black nebula. Okay, so how did I get this goat farm on top of an Illuminati base? Well, to tell you that story, first I gotta tell you how I got the goat farm. A few years back, I was living in Southern California and my employer found it was much easier to fire someone who had been there for 13 years and then hire someone off the street at minimum wage. Uh, my marriage that, um, you know, let, let me just put it this way. Uh, I was in a marriage that probably wasn't healthy for either of us, but that I didn't want to end. Uh, and rent in Southern California just keep going up and I didn't see a way with ending up trying to work two minimum wage jobs that I could support my, you know, my apartment in California. Then a miracle took place, or what at that time I thought was a miracle. Um, my uncle Owen died. Owen wasn't really my uncle. Uh, I'm not quite sure how he fits into this family tree. I think he's like third or fifth cousins on either side of my parents' line. Um, but everybody, including my grandparents, always referred to him as Uncle Owen. He was kind of this hippie, conspiracy nut. Uh, he had, you know, always wearing nine-inch nail t-shirts, had this long, shaggy, hair. He sort of looked like a, a salt and pepper a Kurt Cobain. You know, he was like a, a lapsed Catholic. You know, he'd show up to celebrate Easter and Christmas, and then maybe we'd see him once a year besides that. Um, I'm really not quite sure how he fits into this rather complex family tree I have. But you've got to remember, I have a cousin who once faked his death so he didn't have to associate with us. True story, by the way. So when Owen passes away, for some reason, I am his sole heir and beneficiary. A man I probably hadn't seen in 10 years. And it was a shock, but more importantly, it really seemed like a miracle. I was forced out of my job, I was forced out of my home, I was forced out of my family. And then, all of a sudden, I got offered in Northern Oregon not only property where I could live, but at the same time, 
my own business. So I packed up my Jeep and I drove to a city in Northern Oregon that I had never been there before. So Owen had it set up so that basically he would take the goat milk, turn it into cheese, and then he would sell it to the, you know, the food carts in Portland, as well as, you know, restaurants that catered to hipsters, you know, that wanted, you know, organic, locally grown goat cheese on their exotic uh, burritos or whatever hipsters eat in Portland. And, you know, it was a pretty sweet setup. I mean, it wasn't breaking in, you know, cash, you know, hand over foot or, you know, wasn't making a, a lot of money, but hey, it paid the bills, gave me a little bit of extra money so, you know, I could buy, you know, comic books or see a movie I wanted to once in a while. It was hard work. Uh, I'm going to say that um, it, it, it's hard work, but, uh, you know, it, it paid the bills. And I, I know I really bought into this sort of cliche or trope that, hey, you know, I was, you know, a man of the land. I was producing food for, you know, for people to consume. You know, I really sort of like this farmer lifestyle, which kind of surprised me. Now, one thing we have to remember, though, is that for the first six months of me running the business, I did everything I could to drive it into the ground. I just was completely incompetent because I knew nothing about goats. I knew nothing about making cheese. I knew nothing about how to sell to hipster chefs. I just made every mistake someone could have. But still, the company survived. And I was happy, you know. Maybe for the first time in a while, I was just happy with where I was, who I was, and what I was doing. Then things changed when I started seeing goats walking through the walls. Yeah, something was going on. So before I tell you more about what happened and how I discovered this Illuminati base, why don't we listen to some fiction first? <laughs> 